Life is full of awesome what ifs and some not so much, like unexpected medical costs. That's why United Healthcare provides Health Protector Guard fixed indemnity insurance plans to supplement your primary plan and help manage out of pocket costs. Learn more at uh1.com. Life is full of what ifs, some awesome, like what if AI could fold your laundry? And some, well, less awesome, like what if you have unexpected medical costs? United Healthcare can help get you covered with Health Protector Guard fixed indemnity insurance plans. They supplement your primary plan to help you manage out of pocket costs. No deductibles, no enrollment periods, and especially no more what ifs. Visit uh1.com to find the Health Protector Guard plan for you. I have one of my favorite humans on today to tell you about an amazing product that we both love. Well, thank you, honey. This is Milkman Mark Hyman here telling you about the almond cow, which I saw on those Instagram posts, and I thought, we've got to have one of these and see whether it is actually as good as it looks. And it is. It's actually even better because there are things that you can make out of it. Almond milk, oat milk. Cashew milk. Uh, coconut milk. Anything you want, you can make in this. And what's great is you have, there are fewer preservatives, less sugar, and then what you get left over at the end is this pulp that you can make into, can make cookies or muffins, so nothing goes to waste. And it's there any time, so if you run out of milk, you don't have to run to the store. It is so amazing. We love it, love it, love it. So if you want to get your own, check out the link and use code Lara for extra savings. Approved by the Milkman. Good movement, and welcome to Redefining Yoga, a lit yoga podcast which is designed to investigate all aspects of the modern evolution of yoga from my background as a physical therapist and lover of movement. My mission is to help everyone find freedom through smarter and safer movement patterns so together we can be uplifted, benefiting all beings. Welcome to Friday with Friends. Today, I have Lindsay Masumi on with me. She is another physical therapist who specializes in pelvic health. I was so excited to speak with her to just help people better understand the importance of pelvic health, but also how it's related to the entire core musculature and how when we talk about being core strong, we also mean the pelvic floor and the pelvic wall. And we want it to be strong, but adaptable. We want it to be comfortable and also ready for action. So we talk about her own personal experiences with pelvic floor dysfunction and how that led her into the realm she is now. I hope you enjoy my really interesting talk about the pelvis and pelvic health with Lindsay. Welcome, Lindsay. So happy to have another physical therapist on with me today. Thank you for having me. Excited to be here. Yes. Yeah, so I saw you on Instagram and immediately was gravitating toward all your messaging. Talk to us a little bit about how you got into physical therapy, how you were inspired to become one. I always love to hear how someone else's journey goes. Absolutely. So I started off uh, as a competitive gymnast when I was growing up. And I also did competitive dance too. And that led to, of course, lots of injuries lots of experiences in physical therapy myself. And then eventually I had ankle surgery again, lots more physical therapy. And I was, you know, thrilled with the care that I had received, although disappointed at the same time, it was kind of like the physical therapist had given up on me in the sense, like, you're never going to get back to gymnastics. And slowly after that, I transitioned into competitive cheer. So I took myself out of the gymnastics world, went to cheer 
And with that, um, same thing, kind of suffered with these chronic injuries, had a, a longstanding history of this ankle pain, as well as what I now recognize as pelvic floor dysfunction and decided, you know, I'm going to go into physical therapy and I'm going to work with these athletes who don't have the opportunity to work with people who really speak their language. You know, when I was trying to explain to the physical therapist or the doctor, like what had happened, how I had accrued this injury, they kind of looked at me with confused eyes. And, you know, nowadays, at least we have YouTube, we have Google, we can look things up to kind of understand what the mechanics were there, what I, the skill I was trying to perform. But my perspective was, what if I could be a physical therapist that works with these athletes who understands them, who speaks their language, who can get them back to the highest level of activity, as opposed to just the, you know, the very standard level of care. And so that's kind of what inspired me to get into physical therapy. And I had decided, you know, at a very young age at that point, I was about 13 years old when I was first introduced to PT and kind of stuck with it. I thought, you know, maybe over the years I would change my mind. I would go into a different career, have backup options, but that was never the case. The more I learned about it and the more I kind of got into this field, the more I realized this is exactly what I should be doing. And you ended up, you know, 10 years later, I guess almost 15 years later as a physical therapist. Amazing. So what did you recognize then was a missing kind of link and, and how have you bridged that? And, and in addition to that, what have you, what have you found now, you know, 15 years later or whatever, um, has, has the PT world changed or are you just changing within it? Mm, Good question. So I think at the time, especially when I was a gymnast, it was very, uh, very basic in terms of the care being provided very much like, okay, here's some like TheraBand exercises. You're going to balance on an Airx. You're going to, you know, do some calf raises. Again, this was an ankle injury. So it was very like by the protocol. And I didn't feel like there was that bridge between like, here's the basics of doing these exercises, rebuilding that general strength. And then how do we get you back to you know, doing full layouts, how do we get you back to running full speed towards a vault and then flipping over it multiple times? How do we get you to jump off a beam or dismount off the bars? Again, you're talking like multiple feet off the ground. You need to be able to land and, and stand that impact. And so that's what I felt like was really missing at the time. Now that I've gotten into the field, I definitely see more PTs really venturing into this. And, you know, maybe it was the fact that I was sent to a very generic physical therapy clinic at the time, as opposed to maybe there was a physical therapist who had kind of that specialty training who would have been able to get me back to that higher level. But that's really what was missing at the time. Like I said, nowadays, I see it a lot more in terms of physical therapists specializing uh, in working with gymnasts or higher level athletes. I know PTs who are in the gymnastics gyms who are on the you know, backstage for dance competitions, for cheerleading competitions that are very much in the sport. They understand exactly what needs to happen and the level of intensity that is required to rehab these athletes. I think we've also transitioned a lot into looking at movement. It's no longer following a protocol sent by a physician or an orthopedic surgeon. It is the physical therapist determining, okay, what does this person actually need to get back to that highest level of activity? And how can I optimize their movement to make sure that this doesn't happen again? And so I've kind of adopted a lot of those principles as well. And the school that I attended for physical therapy uh, was very focused on movement and optimizing movement and looking at the way that people are moving that way. Not only can you fix their injury, but potentially teach them 
how to prevent this injury in the future. And so I would have loved to have that experience as a gymnast myself or been able to, you know, have someone take a video of what I was doing and say, look at this, look what's happening from your ankle all the way up to your hip, to your back, to your core. This is what we need to address and change. And this is how we're going to get you back to, you know, your sport. I didn't really have that experience, but I'm looking to provide more of that to the athletes that I work with currently in now a pelvic floor setting. Mm. So what did you notice? You, you referenced that you felt that you had some pelvic floor dysfunction or weakness or something. What, what was it that um, you're remembering that was a clear link that uh, was probably overlooked if people are just isolating to the ankle? Yep. Yeah. So for me, especially, I mean, ankle injury, definitely, um, you know, that can translate all the way up to the core musculature. But for me, uh, I had a lot of stress incontinence. And so especially as I started getting into the higher level skills, as I was learning layouts and layout folds and trying to, again, do these higher level skills that required a lot of power, I was peeing like no other. I mean, I remember doing a tumbling pass and then like running to the bathroom. because I'm like, oh, my bladder must be full. And then emptying my bladder, getting back onto the floor, doing the same tumbling pass again, and the same thing would happen. I remember struggling too so hard to just get a standing back tuck. And I worked on it for years and years and years and could not figure out why I couldn't do it. And it was every single time I tried to throw a standing back tuck or a backflip, I was peeing. And so that changes the, you know, the level of power you're willing to throw. I wasn't running as fast as I possibly could, because if I did that, I would pee. And so again, now that I'm in this space as a pelvic floor physical therapist, I recognize, okay, that was 100% pelvic floor dysfunction. There was definitely something going on there in terms of my uh, ability to manage my pressure and my abdomen. I did not, although I had, you know, beautiful six pack abs, I did not have good or functional core strength in terms of my deep core musculature. And I was super uncoordinated with my ability to toss these tricks or to do these tumbling passes. Um, you know, I just kind of threw them as hard as I could and peed throughout the whole time. And so again, I'm recognizing that this happens to a lot of gymnasts. And if we break down the way that they're moving and, you know, the way that runners are moving, or especially nowadays, I work with a lot of postpartum individuals. If we look at the way that they're lifting or running or moving, it's very similar to the mechanics that we see in gymnastics that again, would lead to greater instances of leakage or difficulties managing the pressure in the abdomen. So um, that's kind of what I am now putting together having entered into this world of pelvic health, like, oh my gosh, I've been suffering with this for, again, like you're, you're looking at almost 15 years that I had pelvic floor dysfunction before I was finally able to get to the root cause, address it, change my mechanics. I no longer have that problem anymore. So I'm, side note, I'd love to get back into the gymnastics gym and throw a lot more of these tumbling passes and <laughs> there see you what go. Happens. Put it out there. Yeah. I think it's so fascinating because, um, I, you know, I, I'm sure you know this more than anyone, but pelvic health, I think is really misunderstood and not only just misunderstood, but it's people want to kind of put it in a this or that type of thing. Like it's this or this. And um, it's more complex and also less complicated than people make it out to be is what I found. And I really want to hear your take on this. But what I, I've seen a lot of postpartum women and, and young women like who haven't had a baby like you, who also had stress incontinence. And, you know, it's almost always their pelvis isn't neutral. There's a lot of imbalance around the pelvis. They're overusing their big 
mover muscles and underusing the stabilizers. So people will think you just need to um, either totally focus inside the pelvis and get those muscles strong, or conversely, they, a lot of talk, people talk about relaxing them. And it's not, it's so much more than that. It's like how the muscles are summoned to do the job they're meant to do, those deep stabilizers, which include the pelvic floor. The pelvic floor and wall are all part of the bottom of the core. Can you talk a little bit more about when people especially like look on social media and they see these kind of five-second, ten-second clips on, okay, you need to learn how to relax your pelvic floor. Of course you do. But it's always circum like what do you, why do you need to relax it? You, you don't want to relax it when you're doing when you're trying to do like what you were doing, a tumbling thing. You want it, those deep core muscles to be integrated with the abdominal core with the back. Um how do you address those things when people are unsure about like, do I relax my pelvic floor? Do I strengthen it? Yeah. Yeah. Good question. And I mean, I could, I could talk about that for hours. And in fact, I've given lectures on this exact topic for hours before. So typically what I look at when it comes to the pelvic floor is the overall function. So like you mentioned, the pelvic floor should be able to contract. It should be able to relax but it also needs to have coordination with the surrounding structures. So we cannot treat the pelvic floor in a vacuum. The pelvic floor just doesn't work like that. Every Amen. time, yes. Yeah. Every time you breathe, every time you stand up, every time you roll, every step that you take, every move that you do requires the pelvic floor muscles to be coordinated. And so often what I'm looking at or what I'm emphasizing with my patients or my clients is we need good dynamic mobility of the pelvic floor. So again, we need these pelvic floor muscles to be able to contract when they're needed. We need them to relax when they're needed. And we need to have good control of the pelvic floor muscles throughout the entire time. Now, it's not realistic in a sense to constantly be thinking about your pelvic floor. Sometimes I tell people, you know, the pelvic floors are pelvic floor muscles are very similar to the lungs. Like you can't think about breathing every second of the day. That's just not realistic. You're never going to get anything done. And so again, we need to train these muscles to work as a system with the rest of the body, as opposed to in a vacuum. So again, we can teach people how to relax their pelvic floor muscles all they want, you know, whether that's laying down or seated or standing, but it doesn't do much for us when we talk about translating that into say a run or a tumbling pass or uh, a heavy lift. Um, and the pelvic floor muscles specifically, I always like to tell my runners this because they're like, oh, I'm like, you know, I'm constantly, I'm holding my abs. I'm trying to tighten my pelvic floor while I'm running. Well, that's not what the pelvic floor does when you run. The pelvic floor actually goes through states of contraction as well as states of lengthening. So it's kind of like this, um, it's like a wave going on when we are running. So we can't just hold our pelvic floor muscles tight and expect them to be functional. Oftentimes when we're doing these heavy lifts or we're running for long distances, maybe we're sprinting, we've got a cough, a sneeze, we're doing a tumbling pass. We need that pelvic floor to go through a bit of lengthening first, as well as the ability to quickly contract and then again, control that lengthening occurring. So again, it's not gonna be as simple as, okay, let's just relax the pelvic floor. Let's squeeze the pelvic floor. And, you know, that's why Kegels aren't really effective. I get a lot of people who come in very frustrated that they were told to just like 
Kegel their way out of leakage, you know, oh, just like do a Kegel when you lift heavy or yeah, do a Kegel when you're like landing with high impact that it, it just doesn't work. That's not how those muscles work. They have to work as a system with the rest of the body. And it's, that's where it becomes a lot more complex than, you know, relax and contract. So, um, that was a great explanation and I totally agree. And I think that lengthening what you're referring to is like an eccentric, like if I were holding groceries, you know, that's an isometric contraction of my bicep. And if I start to put them down so that they are not going to just drop on the table, that my bicep is lengthening, but it's still working. And mm -hmm. so there are different forms of mus muscular contractions. It isn't just hold or release. It is the intelligence of the nervous system to know and give that um, information in a coordinated way to support your core, your, your, the bones of your spine and your pelvis and your rib cage and your scapula and your shoulder girdle to um, move you through space in, a, in, a, in an efficient way. There's lots of ways of moving and we want to be moving in an efficient way because that usually leads to, you know, less stress, less, less of a chance of injury. So what are some of the common things that you see when people come in and they complain about either pain during sex or leakage during running or, or leaking. They can't, you know, I'll have people who are like, I can't do jumping jacks or I'll pee. And I'm like, well, you know, that's not, that's not, I don't want to say that's not normal because it's very common, but it, it shouldn't be that you're okay with that, right? Mm -hmm. you, can, you can do something about that. Yeah. What are some of the common things that you see? Like in terms of diagnoses or, um, impairments? Oh, you... either. Okay. Yeah. So common diagnoses, and I think these, I'll try to include kind of a, a wide spectrum of things that could be related to pelvic floor dysfunction. So like you mentioned, pain with intercourse is a big one. Leakage, whether that's like with exercise or maybe a strong urge, tailbone pain, chronic constipation, overactive bladder. Um, I see a lot of people with like pudendal neuralgia. So that's a very specific diagnosis, but kind of like numbness or pain in the pelvic region, especially with like sitting for extended periods of time. Um, I see actually a lot of difficulty achieving orgasm too, or erectile dysfunction if it's in a male. Um, let's see, low back pain, hip pain. Again, these are all typically signs of pelvic floor dysfunction. And that is why I believe if you are suffering from those things, we should at least be screening in the PT world for other symptoms of pelvic floor dysfunction. Sure, there is a chance someone has low back pain and you know there's nothing going on with the pelvic floor muscles or the core. Chances are there is though, and we need to be assessing those individuals appropriately and making sure if needed, we're referring them to pelvic floor specialists. Now, when I am assessing individuals who come in with these conditions, a lot of things that I see, again, we're having tightness in the pelvic floor muscles. Um, there are areas that they have a very difficult time voluntarily relaxing, especially if I ask them to do like a pelvic floor contraction or, you know, contract their abdominal muscles. They either one can't do it because they don't have the mobility. Things are so tight already that it's not going to contract anymore. It's like having your hand in a fist and saying, you know, squeeze your hand, like make a fist. You're like, it, it already is like, it's not going to feel like you're doing anything because those muscles are already in the shortened state. So I see a lot of kind of overactivity of the pelvic floor difficulty, voluntarily relaxing, maybe even involuntary, involuntarily relaxing those pelvic floor muscles. So I have people do a lot of breathing. I'm assessing their pelvic floor as they're doing diaphragmatic or belly breathing. Are they getting good movement there? 
a lot of these people are not. They stop short of the pelvic floor. They breathe basically to their belly button and then there's nothing happening in the pelvic floor. And again, that's that coordination aspect. Um, I see a lot of uncoordinated pelvic floor muscles. So when I say squeeze your pelvic floor, they're actually relaxing, maybe bearing down or the opposite occurring. When I say relax your pelvic floor muscles, they're actually inadvertently squeezing them, having a difficult time there. Typically with these patients as well, I'm seeing, you know, decreased hip mobility, maybe lumbar mobility. Um, maybe they've got a preference or uh, an imbalance occurring where one hip is like much stronger or tighter than the other hip. Or, you know, again, difficulty with abdominal coordination. They're all rectus and no transverse abdominus. They can't get that internal stability going. They're constantly just bearing out against the abdominals there. So those are the typical things I see on every once in a while. These patients will have things outside of the pelvic region too. And that's why it's important that we look beyond just the hips, the back, the pelvis, the abdominals. We need to be looking at shoulder mechanics. You know, the lats attach from the back of the shoulder blade, all the way down to the opposite side of the pelvis. And so that could be contributing there. I see a lot of patients with TMJ or like cervicogenic headaches. And again, that's related to their pelvic floor dysfunction, which came first, you know, it's a chicken or an egg kind of situation. Like did the TMJ upper, you know, upper neck problems lead to then pelvic floor dysfunction, or is their pelvic floor now causing impaired breathing mechanics that's tightened everything up in the shoulders and the neck? hard to say, but we need to assess both. Otherwise we're not going to get the results we're looking for. Same thing. You can go all the way down to the foot. So if I think back to my experiences, I didn't have pelvic floor dysfunction until I had these ankle injuries. And so all the way down to the foot, sometimes even the big toe can impact all the way up the chain to the hip, the mechanics that are occurring there. If I don't have appropriate, you know, movement in my ankle stability in the ankle, my body is going to compensate in one way or another. And so oftentimes I do see people with foot problems. I had, I had someone come in today. He was like, it's my high arches. I got insoles and <laughs> I've been able to uh, address my pelvic floor symptoms even further. And so, you know, sometimes we start and we kind of narrow in on the pelvis, but we really need to look outside of the pelvis on everything that could be contributing, not only to these symptoms, but in terms of treatment and really addressing getting to the root cause. So you mentioned um, many people are kind of overactive, and what it what do you think are like maybe the top three causes of that? Like overactivity, clenching, not knowing, not yeah, and that leads to the disc the discoordination of not being able to relax, or like you said, holding a fist where you can't make it tighter. But how? Why are people coming in and? and they're holding a fist in their pelvis? Great question. And my patients ask me this all the time as well. Like, how did I end up with this problem? Um, so the three things I typically see that would lead to kind of this overactivity or tension in the pelvic floor. The first one I would say is stress. And so the pelvic floor muscles are highly, highly um, influenced by the stress in our life, whether that's a physical stress, a mental stress, an emotional stress. Again, they are connected to the central nervous system. So if we're suffering from stress, anxiety, depression, um, we have mental health issues that we haven't quite worked through or we're currently trying to work through, that can cause a big upregulation in our nervous system and overall just increased tension in the pelvic floor. Women specifically hold a lot of their stress and tension 
in the abdomen and in the pelvic floor. And I believe that's because as women, we are kind of expected to hold this big role. If we're working women, if we're moms, if we're, you know, trying to like do everything in the household as well, we don't have time to appear stressed or overworked. So we hide it in our abdomen and in our pelvic floor where people can't really tell that we're tensing things. So stress is a big one that will influence tightness in the pelvic floor. The other thing I see a lot is trauma. So whether that is against sexual trauma, whether that's been a physical trauma to the back or the pelvic floor, whether, you know, you've just had a baby like a vaginal birth or a C-section, that trauma is going to trigger a protective response. We are trying to really protect that area. And again, our body's natural response is to really tension these pelvic floor muscles or tension the core, tension the back, tension the glutes to try to provide stability. So a lot of times we need to, again, train the body to feel safe. And that may not just be through a physical therapist or a health coach. You know, we may need to recruit other resources like mental health therapists or Um, massage therapists, maybe acupuncture, uh, chiropractics. We need to look at, again, all of the things that can help us address our trauma, heal that trauma so that the pelvic floor muscles in that area can feel safe and protected and allowed to relax. The third thing I would say is this uh, diet culture, American society that tells us we need to be skinny and have a small waist and everything needs to be flat. Like I did it again for years and years and years, especially with my history of disordered eating and body image issues. Like I did not want to look like I didn't have six pack abs. That was the gymnast in me that had grown up. You know, that was like my identity is to have these like super defined abdominal muscles. And so in order to have that look, I needed to, again, suck in, squeeze my abs at all times. And that is very much the American way. You know, women are expected to look skinny and tiny and have these flat abs. And if you relax your belly, let it all hang out, you don't fit into that image anymore. So I think American society in general has influenced and caused a lot of pelvic floor issues, especially for women, men as well. You know, there's a lot of men and bodybuilders and and people who, again, want to look small and skinny, like they have this tiny waist. And so that is part of it as well. When you know you're looking on social media or in the magazines or the news and these celebrities are just like perfectly toned with this tiny waist and like these big butts. And so we're like, okay, I'll just like suck it in all day long. So I fit into that image. And again, that can lead to difficulty with relaxation in the pelvic floor and kind of this overactivity occurring. Yeah. And speaking of the six pack, can you talk a little bit about why having a six pack is probably not good functional thing to have. Um, what creates the sick pack and usually what means there's an imbalance. Yes. Yeah. So six pack abs, those are going to be your rectus abdominis muscles. So those start at the bottom of your ribs. They're going to go actually to the top of your pelvis there. And, um, really they're for show. They don't do a lot other than, (laughs) other than look good. So it's kind of funny that we spend so much time focused on this six pack look when really the function comes from this deep core musculature, uh, your transverse abdominis. So that's like a corset muscle. It wraps all the way from your back, all the way from your spine to the front. It's deep and it provides stability to the spine, to the pelvis, to the hips. 
and also to your internal organs. And so if we have kind of this overactivation of our rectus and an underactivation of our transverse abdominis or our deep core muscles, things are not going to function optimally. We are going to have this imbalance occurring where we're getting an overactivation on the front. Rectus abdominis actually shortens the torso. So it brings your rib cage down, leads to a little bit more pressure in that bladder region. If we have good functional activation of the transverse abdominis, again, it needs to be functional. We can't just like, you know, activate it and not have it translate into anything else. But if we have this functional use of our transverse abdominis, we get more 360 support that's actually going to help lift up off of the bladder, as opposed to provide this downward pressure that we get with activation of the rectus. Ideally, we want, again, this 360 degree core activation. We want everything to be working together as opposed to one group of muscles being overactive, causing these odd compensations or these imbalances that then lead to further problems in the pelvis. Mm, I love that. And, uh, I was thinking like, can you give an example of some exercises that you love that really give you a more balanced core, that 360 approach mm. for people who are like, you know, used to do anybody that comes to me and says, I'm doing a hundred crunches a day. I'm like, then you're not serving yourself well. There's nothing functionally sound about that. And honestly, I think it leads to this very problem because it's, it's you're using these big mover muscles of the rectus and probably you're cranking on your neck a little bit, et cetera. Um, what would you, what are some of the good ones that you would recommend for people to do? Yeah. So I typically start with the basics when it comes to, um, you know, this transverse abdominus activation, getting kind of 360 degree core movement. I want to be sure that you can keep things stable first. Um, so typically we start with a lot of like on the back, maybe it's marches, maybe it's like a dead bug activity. Can you really control movement in the pelvis and the spine as you then go to move or extend the legs? So we start super basic. Once people kind of nail that down, I'm going straight to function. So we're looking at deadlifts and this is going to be very different than the deadlifts you see you know, your heavy lifters doing in the gym with a belt when they're bearing outward, that is not transverse abdominus, deep core activation that's bearing outward against your abdomen. And that's a different, again, different kind of activation. So we're talking deadlifts with a pull in of the transverse abdominus. Can you stabilize without a belt? Keep that spine nice and still as you lift up. I like to do a lot of farmer's carries. So a lot of unilateral work to really challenge the core um, pull-ups, for instance, that is a great way to work this 360 degree core strength and they're functional. How many times do you need to pull yourself up or get up from something? Um, probably pretty often. Squats, especially front squats, I love to do because it, again, it, it's going to train your ability to coordinate these muscles, not just get um, activation of your six pack. I mean, I remember, again, I bring it back to my gymnastics and my cheer days. Our core work was like, I did 10 crunches normal and then like 10 side and then like, you know, the side to side twisting, like it was, it's terrible. I look back and I'm like that, but no, that like, I don't even know how I did gymnastics at the time. It was not functional. Um, so I am a big, a big advocate for lifting weights. Let's look at deadlifts. Let's look at squats. Let's look at lunges, um, unilateral carries 
pull-ups, push-ups, things that are going to really challenge the core in a way that makes sense and that can translate into your day-to-day activities. Yeah, it's almost like you have to soak it to, to really get the response. So yes, to, to create that neural mapping to begin with in a, in a smaller movement pattern like you're talking about on your back, this is exactly what I do in our, our lit classes, and then start to translate it into more load, um, more demand. And, and, you know, again, I really preach neutral pelvis because when your pelvis is neutral for so many of these activities, obviously we don't always live in neutral, but so many people don't even know how to hold neutral. And that is required for that, that requires all of this, uh, the dynamic stability you're talking about for the core. And, and one thing I see a lot is people are not living, not even living in neutral pelvis, not even understanding it. I mean, I just had a guy the other day who has low back pain, his doctor wants to operate on him. And I just am like, give me a few months. Let's just try this. Because why? Because he's got all the things. He's overdeveloped lats, overdeveloped chest, anterior tilt. Is the anterior tilt the problem? No, except that all the muscles have then adapted to that. So really shortened muscles in the low back. Rectus is so overactive, has lost hip mobility. And he's just too young to have surgery. It's just so, uh, for lack of a better word, fixable without surgery, but it is hard. It is hard to overcome that um, very, very deep wiring of uh, compensation that he's been doing. And the stuff we do is so small and it just is, he's like breaking sweat doing it. And that's the other thing people don't realize is like when they get into the deeper layers it is, it will heat you up <laughs> because you're, go, you're getting in there. Mm-hmm. Do you find that you see that a lot as well? People who have that pelvic dysfunction, again, we don't say anterior tilt is a diagnosis, but people are living in it and, and the compensations that occur because of it are, are, are serious, very mm-hmm. serious. Absolutely. Absolutely. I see it all the time. Um, people have a really hard time, again, just coordinating the position of their pelvis, especially if you have just spent nine, 10 months pregnant with this, you know, big belly kind of pulling that pelvis again, more towards that anterior tilt. You've got a lot of weight in the front. Yes. Your body adapts over that time, but now baby is out. You know, you're trying to retrain all of these muscles. You've got these super long abs here. Everything's been pulled forward. And now we have to retrain everything again, kind of back into neutral. Yeah. People aren't going to live in neutral forever. We need to be able to move outside of neutral as well. But if we can't even get people into neutral and able to coordinate those muscles in that basically the easiest position, then you're not ready to go outside of that position and challenge the body in that way. Um, So yes, I see it all the time. And especially I work with a lot of, like I mentioned earlier, higher level athletes. So I see a lot of triathletes, a lot of uh, long distance runners, a lot of power lifters, crossfitters, people who are competing at a very, very high level and you get them down and just try to get a proper core activation. Just try to get them to, let's say, um, we go into like a bird dog position. Can you extend your leg and your arm without the pelvis going into that anterior tilt? No, they struggle. (laughs) They struggle so much to just maintain that pelvic stability while moving a leg or moving an arm. And you're like, okay, well, every time you do that, you're now dumping into the front here. You've put increased pressure on the 
bladder. So like, yeah, no wonder you're experiencing leakage and back pain and you've got this diastasis that hasn't healed yet, even though it's been three years since you've had your baby. The the positions you're putting your body in throughout the day, as well as the positions you're trying to challenge your body are not appropriate for the demand that you are putting on the body. And so, yeah, those people struggle so much and it's, so much. Um, it's, it's humbling to them. They realize very. very quickly that yes, they may be strong, but they do not have the, the control and the coordination that they need to really adapt and make these changes. And that's why they're in this situation that they're in. So speaking of pregnant women and, you know, everybody, I think it's like at seven months, everyone is going to have diastasis. It's just a matter of once the baby's born, how, how great that remains. I, I have two kids. I've taught many, many women. I've never been in fear of diastasis at all. I know that, you know, I, I know the body's really strong and, but I'll, do you hear a lot of fear mongering around it? And I think it's maybe less in the PT world and more just like in the general kind of public, but it's like, oh, I can't do, I have diastasis, which I do. And I'm like, it's fine. Let's, we can make it better. You know, it's yep. like, it's okay. Right. Yes. There is definitely a lot of fear that I see. Um, oddly enough, it's kind of on like one side or the other. People are either like so fearful. They're like, oh my gosh, I should not lift any weights. I shouldn't do any planks. I shouldn't do these exercises whatsoever. Or on the other side, they're like, I have no idea what this is. And they come in and like every single time they move, they've got this like crazy doming or coning or all of this going on. And again, that is just feedback of something occurring. I like to call it a yellow flag. Like, sure, this is occurring. Uh, let's see if we can change it before it develops into a bigger problem, like potentially a hernia or a prolapse or back pain whatever it is, um, that is feedback for us. So yeah, I see a ton of, again, fear mongering or people are like absolutely clueless right. that this They're, could occur. I don't know and what that I'm little thing is there, that big space and that yep. thing. Yeah. Yep. Exactly. Now I, I saw in your Instagram feed, um, you had a really great explanation of the difference between abdominal bracing and, um, what was the other engaging engaging yes can you mm -hmm. talk a little bit about that like when is one appropriate because again it always goes back to this it's really like you know it's almost like dressing like or or, or behavior like you're gonna you're gonna behave in an appropriate way around your family that you might not do you're probably not gonna do in public it's just we we make these adjustments we don't act the same in different environments I mean hopefully we're always nice but you know, we can relax more, or we can get funny, or we can get a little bit more, you know, whatever it is, uh, inappropriate, but we would act differently at work. And it's kind of like the, you know, your muscles are, they need to act in an appropriate way. You need to breathe in an appropriate way. So appropriate is a really good term because it's not, it isn't right or wrong. It's just, what is the, again, what do you need to have happen? And is your body acting in an appropriate way? So I think, yeah, go ahead and explain the difference between those two. Yeah. So I'll go ahead and explain bracing versus engaging first, at least how I understand it and how I explained it in this Instagram post. So bracing is a technique that we often see again in our heavier weightlifters, especially if you're using a belt. So bracing, we're going to brace outward. We're going to get this 360 degree expansion, breathe outward against the entire core. So this is a technique that we often see again in our heavier lifters 
to help with kind of a Valsalva maneuver. So help us lift super, super heavy weight. Often this is what we see with a one RM or, you know, a one repetition max. Engaging on the other hand is where we're again, coordinating these deep core muscles using our internal system to provide support to the spine, to the pelvis, to the abdominals, to the back. And so again, it's a very specific technique where we're drawing transverse abdominis in to provide that internal stability with the muscle support. Now, either technique may be appropriate depending on what you're trying to do. But if you are experiencing symptoms, specifically pelvic floor symptoms, like leakage, if you're having heaviness when you're lifting, if you're experiencing maybe low back pain, if you're getting doming or coning in the abdomen, I'm probably not going to recommend the bracing technique where we're breathing outward against everything because that increases pressure on our pelvic floor. If we are struggling with the amount of load that we're lifting and we're getting leakage using the bracing technique, we need to implement a different strategy here to kind of overcome that. Basically, you know, we, we've got this load, our pelvic floor can't withstand the load. Now we experience leakage. Now we experience heaviness. So let's try a different technique like engaging where we actually work to, again, provide that internal stability, provide that internal support that way we're not having those symptoms. Um, so again, it becomes very symptom dependent. It depends on the task at hand. Again, if you are going to like pick up your child and you're experiencing a little bit of leakage there, let's look at the engaging strategy versus, you know, trying to bear down uh, out on your abdomen or down on your pelvic floor and make things worse. So with my heavier lifters, sometimes this is a hard thing to overcome. They want, you know, they've been taught to brace outward. They've been taught to lift with a belt, but okay. You have all of these things going on. You have all of this back pain. What if we try something different? And I found that it's a really effective technique to actually engage the abdominals, come back to, you know, the basics here, retrain those strategies and then build back up. And Hey, guess what? not only are they no longer experiencing back pain or leakage or prolapse, they're actually maxing out. They're, you know, advancing past what they were previously able to lift with these new strategies that we're implementing. Yeah, and so I was going to say, you could just show them a YouTube of like, I've, it's terrible. I've seen like one where somebody's lifting heavy weights and they poop their pants. And it's like, mm -hmm. it's a perfect example of too much pressure that literally pushes down um, and no one wants that. So right. it is like, you have to find, it's like, it's balancing that mm -hmm. in the body so that I imagine it's a, it's a slight engagement of everything hugging around the spine yep. and within the pelvis and then allowing a, a little bit of the bracing on top of it. Yes. Yep. Yeah, exactly. So again, it's all going to be dependent at the task at hand, as well as your ability for your core um, and when I say the core, I mean the pelvic floor as well to withstand the load that you're lifting or, you know, the load that you are trying to put on the body. So that may look very different for an individual, depending on what they do. Again, I've got, I've got people who they're maxing out at 600 pounds on their deadlifts oh and, you know, so I have individuals like that. And then I also have individuals who are experiencing leakage or heaviness when they stand up from a chair. So again, it's going to be totally dependent on the individual and the task at hand as to what strategy we're going to implement. Sometimes you have to play around with it too. So what do you do in your own personal, um, 
workouts. Are you working toward going back into gymnastics? What does your kind of daily routine look like? Yeah. So I keep things, uh, I like to mix things up definitely. So I prefer, um, powerlifting. That is kind of my go-to for exercise, especially again, the more I learn about the pelvic floor and the core and the, the strategies I implement with a lot of my weightlifters, I have changed the way that I lift significantly. I was that individual again, who was like maxing out. I plateaued on all of my lifts and I was like, what the heck, why can I not get past this? I have now overcome a lot of that with these new strategies and the focus that I have put on again, neutral pelvis. How can I optimize my muscle activation, my strategies at hand? I also really enjoy doing yoga. Again, I need that good mobility. I need that stability as well. If I'm going to also improve my lifts. Um, I like to, again, work out with a lot of my patients or clients. I'm doing exercises with them. I'm demoing things like that. Uh, I'm on the Pilates reformer a lot. We have one at the clinic I work at. And so I really try to vary my exercises, do lots and lots and lots of different things. And then of course, I'm very into uh, gymnastics type movements. I'm doing handstands. I'm walking around. I'm working on back handsprings. I'm on a trampoline. I do lots of things like that as well, just because again, I believe that maintaining those skills are not only fun and cool, but, uh, in my case functional, like I like to do those things. It's a great way to challenge the body at the beginning of COVID. That was like, when everything shut down, that was all I was doing was like calisthenics and handstand work, press handstands, um, just playing with all of that. And it made me realize, you know, I had a lot to work on in terms of being able to maintain pelvic stability, um, and just good shoulder girdle strength. But it is a great workout, a great challenge. And everything that I do just kind of feeds off of itself. So I'm constantly challenging the body in different ways and, you know, want to be able to kind of maintain that function and that strength late into my life. That sounds really intelligent. And not all PTs are doing that. So I really, I, I um, really commend you. Sometimes people think all PTs are really active and a lot of them are not. So it's great to see someone who is, uh, practicing what you preach. And I really appreciate your time. Where can people um, learn more about you and find you on social media? Yeah. So they can find me on Instagram at Dr. Lindsay Masumi. That is where uh, I am the most active, where I post the majority of my content. I have the same uh, handle on TikTok as well. Dr. Lindsay Masumi. If you want more of the PT content, my PT aspect, follow me on Twitter at Lindsay Masumi, but those are my main platforms that you can find me at. Um, and I'd love to connect with different individuals, especially if you have questions about the pelvic floor, pelvic health, if you're pregnant or postpartum and you want to know what you should be doing, please reach out. I am more than willing to guide you or at least direct you in, in the right way on how you can protect your body as well as maintain this active lifestyle. I love that. Thank you so much for your time, Lindsay. It was really, a, it was such a pleasure to talk to you and, um, I look forward to speaking more. All right. Thank you so much for having me. Thank you everyone for listening. And as always, I'm pulling for you.